Santa Christmas still mean a lot Cause it's the time to get together and give all you got You got food, good moods, and what's better than together with your people Where wishes give a toast by the tree, it's Merry Christmas On the ceiling, Jack Frost chilling. Pinch the Grinch for being a holiday villain. Seasons greetings, all the proceeds are brought to you by the church house where we'll be eating. Chestnuts roasting on the open fire, singing my jingle. Where is Chris Kringle? I didn't cop and I ain't even shout. I even stayed in the house when the homies tried to sneak me out. Now all I want for Christmas is my six-fold Chevrolet and a granddaughter for her grandmother Beverly. Ain't that something? Nah, ain't that nothing? How was Christmas time? And my rhyme steady bumping. Everybody happy, happy. Hair still nappy. Gonna steal a gift for my old grandpappy. Catch me giving out turkeys at the church house. Don't try to work me. Just stand in line and everything gonna be fine. Holla at your folks, boys. Gonna stay. Ain't no help from no else. Just a dog man.
order the spinach. Paradoxically, I'm about to climb a mountain on Christmas Day with a man named Larry Davis. Larry has climbed Mount... David Sedaris has written three very funny best-selling books and attracts big crowds. Billy Collins is the poet lord. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. It is as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye, and you watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall, well on your own way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart.
said she liked the Snoop Dogg Christmas. Here we go. We're back. Ain't no 
sign with everything under this tree in my house is mine my wife that and this plastic nine to do fine till next year come i try to see the same thing they got us brainwashed done and when you find it ain't no santa christmas still mean a lot cause it's the time to get together and give all you got you got food good moods and what's better than together with your people swear wishes give a toast by the tree it's merry christmas Santa Claus on the ceiling, Jack Frost chilling, pinch the Grinch for being a holiday villain. Seasons greetings, all the proceedings are brought to you by the church house where we'll be eating. Chestnuts roasting on the open fire, singing my jingle, where is Chris Kringle? I didn't cop and I ain't even shout. I even stayed in the house when the homies tried to sneak me out. Now all I want for Christmas is my six-fold Chevrolet and a granddaughter for her grandmother Beverly. Ain't that something? Nah, ain't that nothing? How was Christmas time? And my rhyme steady bumping. Everybody happy, hair still nappy. Gonna steal a gift for my old grandpappy. Catch me giving out turkeys at the church house. Don't try to work me, just stand in line and everything gonna be fine. Holla at your folks, boys, going down. Ain't no helps from no elves, just a dog pan. And we passing our gifts. Blazing up splits, Christmas on the road. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Santa Claus is coming straight. Christmas Eve, I believe. 76 was the year. Girls and boys full of joy with the season cheer. Smell the sky, hella pies and cakes getting baked. To be ate after everything gone off your plate. But wait, not tonight, it's straight beans and rice. On the table, are we able to receive tonight? I wonder what the morn bringing so it's hard to doze off. Three o'clock in my socks, I crack the dose off. Hoping when I open the door, I see Santa. Now who the hell is this in this blue bandana? Messing with the boxes that's up under the tree. Look like Santa Claus that crossed into a woman to me. Now I'm coming to see the whole picture get clearer. How we have less as x mess get nearer. Mirror, mirror, please, it seems I've been deceived. And thank it's ain't trick for the gifts I received. So I freak back and act like I ain't even peeped it. This'll be me and mom's private secret. Santa Claus is coming straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus is coming straight to the ghetto.
This one dedicated to man, I'm called MacGyver. And all 007 James Boss, right, man, it's on the area. Maximum respected man, I'm called Ice And the boss don't do so, so
Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Fill every stocking you find The kids are gonna love you so uh, Leave a toy for Johnny Leave a doll for Mary Leave something pretty for Johnny And don't forget about Gary Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Tell him James Brown sent you Go straight to the ghetto You know that I know What you will see Cause that was once Me
say much, never get to talk, tell us a little bit, but not too much, right about then, that's where she give up, she has closed her eyes, she has give up hope.
citizens who might spend an entire afternoon huddled over a single serving of rice pudding. The K&W was past its prime, whereas my cafeteria was located in the sparkling new Crabtree Valley, a former swamp that made her mall look like a dusty tribal marketplace. The Piccadilly had red velvet walls and a dining room lit by artificial torches. 
A suit of armor marked the entrance to this culinary castle where, we were told, the customer was always king. As a dishwasher, I spent my shifts yanking trays off a conveyor belt and feeding their contents into an enormous, foul-mouthed machine that roared and spat until its charges, free of congealed fat and gravy, came steaming out the other end, fogging my glasses and filling the air with the harsh smell of chlorine. I didn't care for the heat or the noise, but other than that, I enjoyed my job. The work kept my hands busy, but left my mind free to concentrate on more important matters. Sometimes I would study from the list of irregular Spanish verbs I kept posted over the sink, but most often I found myself fantasizing about a career in television. It was my dream to create and star in a program called Socrates and Company in which I would travel from place to place accompanied by a brilliant and loyal proboscis monkey. Socrates and I wouldn't go looking for trouble, but week after week it would manage to find us. The eyes, Socrates, go for the eyes, I'd yell during one of our many fight scenes. Maybe in Santa Fe I'd be hit over the head by a heavy jug and lose my memory. Somewhere in Utah, Socrates might discover a satchel of valuable coins or befriend someone wearing a turban, but at the end of every show, we would realize that true happiness often lies where you very least expect it. It might arrive in the form of a gentle breeze or a handful of peanuts, but when it came, we would seize it with our own brand of folksy wisdom. I'd planned it so that the final moments of each episode would find Socrates and me standing before a to me that we were all held captive in that prison known as the human mind. I would muse, or... It suddenly occurred to me that freedom was perhaps the greatest gift of all. I'd hoped to crack these people like nuts, sifting through their brains and coming away with the lessons garnered by a lifetime of regret. Unfortunately, Having spent the better part of their lives behind bars, the men and women I worked with seemed to have learned nothing except how to get out of doing their jobs. Kettles boiled over and steaks were routinely left to blacken on the grill as my co-workers crept off to the stockroom to smoke and play cards or sometimes have sex. It suddenly occurred to me that people are lazy, my reflective TV voice would say. This was hardly a major news flash, and as a closing statement, it would undoubtedly fail to warm the hearts of my television audience, who by their very definition were probably not too active themselves. No, my message needed to be more upbeat and spiritually rewarding. Joy, I think, whacking the dirty plates against the edge of the slop can. What brings people joy? 
As Christmas approached, I found my valuable fantasy time cut in half. The mall was crazy now with hungry shoppers, and every three minutes I had the assistant manager on my back, hollering for more coffee cups and vegetable bowls. The holiday customers formed a loud and steady line that reached past the coat of arms all the way to the suit of armor at the front door. They wore cheerful Santas pinned to their bobbled shirts and carried oversized bags laden with power tools and assorted cheeses, bought as gifts for friends and relatives. It made me sad and desperate to see so many people, strangers whose sheer numbers eroded the sense of importance I was working so hard to invent. Where did they come from and why couldn't they just go home? I might swipe their trays off the belt without once wondering who these people were and why they hadn't bothered to finish their breaded cutlets. They meant nothing to me, and watching them move down the line towards the cashier, it became apparent that the feeling was mutual. They wouldn't even remember the meal, much less the person who had provided them with their piping hot tray. How was it that I was important and they were not? There had to be something that separated us. I had always looked forward to Christmas, but now my enthusiasm struck me as cheap and common. Leaving the cafeteria after work, I would see even more people swarming out of the shops and restaurants like bees from a burning hive. Here were the young couples in their stocking caps and the families clustered beside the fountain each with its lists and marked envelopes of money. It was no wonder the Chinese people couldn't tell them apart. They were sheep, stupid animals programmed by nature to mate and graze and bleed out their wishes to the obese, retired school principal who sat on his ass in the mall's sorry-looking North Pole. My animosity was getting the best of me until I saw in their behavior a solution to my troubling identity crisis. Let them have their rolls of gift wrap and gaudy personalized stockings. If it meant something to them, I wanted nothing to do with it. This year, I would be the one without the shopping bags, the one wearing black in protest of their thoughtless commercialism. My very avoidance would set me apart and cause these people to question themselves in ways that would surely pain them. Who are we, they'd ask, plucking the ornaments off their trees. What have we become, and why can't we be more like that somber fellow who washes dishes down at the Piccadilly Cafe?
Jack Frost nipping at your nose. You'll tie Carol, he's sung by a choir. Folks dressed like black Eskimo.
We deserve it.
my radio call-in shows. Had my father been driving, we would have locked all the doors and ignored the stop signs, speeding through the area as quickly as possible because that's what smart people did. Pulled over and parked behind a van whose owner stood examining his flat tire with a flashlight. Things might get a little rough up there, so just do what I tell you and hopefully no one will get hurt. She flipped her hair over her shoulder and stepped out of the car, kicking aside the cans and bottles that lined the curb. My sister meant business, whatever it was, and in that instant she appeared beautiful and exotic and dangerously stupid. Local teens slain for sport, the headlines would read. Holiday hijinks end in homicide. Maybe someone should wait with the car, I whispered, but she was beyond reason, charging up the street in her sensible shoes with a rugged, determined gait. There was no fumbling for a street address or doorbell. Lisa seemed to know exactly where she was going. I followed her into a dark vestibule and up a flight of stairs, where without even bothering to knock, she threw open an unlocked door and stormed into a filthy, overheated room that smelled of stale smoke, sour milk, and seriously dirty laundry. Three odors that, once combined, can peel the paint off of walls. This was a place where bad things happened to people who clearly deserved nothing but the worst. The stained carpet was littered with cigarette butts, and clotted, dust-covered flypaper hung from the ceiling like beaded curtains. In the far corner of the room, a man stood beside an overturned coffee table, illuminated by a shadeless lamp that broadcast his shadow huge and menacing against the grimy wall. He was dressed casually in briefs and a soiled t-shirt and had thin, hairless legs, the color and pebbled texture of a store-bought chicken. We had obviously interrupted some rite of unhappiness, something that involved shouting obscenities while pounding upon a locked door with a white-tasseled loafer. The activity consumed him so completely that it took the man a few moments to register our presence. Squinting in our direction, he dropped the shoe and steadied himself against the mantle.
get you another. Hearing a fresh, slurred voice in the house, my brother and sisters rushed from their rooms and gathered to examine Lisa's friend, who clearly cherished the attention. Angels! You're a pack of goddamn angels! She was surrounded by admirers, and her eyes brightened with each question or comment. Which do you like better, my sister Amy asked. Spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? What were the prison guards really like? Do you ever carry a weapon? How much do you charge if somebody just wants a spanking? One at a time, one at a time, my mother said. Give her a second to answer.
This something's fucked up with this turntable. remembers he has not bought any gifts for his friends and relatives. He decides to go to Jeffman's, the large department store downtown. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for something in person. Any particular fragrance? Uh, I thought you might be able to suggest something. Well, there certainly is a large variety to choose from. I can see that. That's where the store Santa Claus holds court. Probably some kid didn't get what he wanted and is registering a complaint. Hey, stop that man! He stole my Christmas present! Hey, you! Stop! What 
attention, mister. You're of storms. Sorry to get hurt. Sorry, pal. I'm in a hurry. I understand. Christmas rush. Yeah, well, I gotta run. Hey, mister, give me my Christmas present. Go away. Give it to me. Come on, kid. Go away. What seems to be the problem? He stole my Christmas present. The one that Santa Claus gave me. Look, pal, she's my daughter. I wanted a surprise. Now she's gonna rule the whole thing. He's not my father. Give me my present. I think you better give it to her. Get out of my way. Put that gun away. Someone could get hurt. Not if you leave me alone. Now stand aside. I'm walking out of here. Oh, you're not. At the Office of Scientific Intelligence, Colonel Steve Austin is in the security conference with his boss, Oscar Goldman. Good thing you called me in on this, Steve. When I grabbed that guy, he dropped the package and it broke open. I could see the thing inside was no ordinary Christmas present. That's why I picked it up and got it to you. Steve, you seem to have a talent for finding trouble. But in this case, you may have stumbled on a major espionage ring. An espionage ring? Steve, the man you fought with in the department store is Harrison Fredericks. For a long while, he's been known to be a free agent in the espionage market, selling his services to the highest bidder. But what is even more interesting to us is what he was carrying in that package. What was it? It was an electronic fuel cell for our latest attack missile, the SYR-9. The SYR-9? I thought that was out in California. Landing on the Arctic terrain, Steve and Oscar were accosted by the enemy agent Ramat at gunpoint, captured and locked up in an old warehouse. Is the wound serious, Oscar? I don't think so, Steve. Looks like a scratch. Where are we? It's a warehouse. Where are we?
Zoom normal broadcasting shortly. you could make it. No problem, Oscar. I'm staying in town for the holidays. Steve, the Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs picked up an unusual radio message the other day on a restricted frequency. No identification codes? That's part of the problem. All messages received over the defense network are preceded by an identification code, and they are followed by a second ident code before signing off. And this communication has no code on either side. They can't even decode the message. What are we going to do? It defies analysis, Steve. As a matter of fact, nothing on record as language or numeric code is anything like it. I've called in Dr. Landis. Ethel Landis? She's the top expert in the field of coded communication. And she has a lot of kooky ideas, Oscar. I know, Steve, but we can't afford to overlook any possibilities.
turned them into affections, and they've made a very nice living for me, and it seems to have worked. Did you ever feel that this time the horror stories jinxed you, that something that you feared and had written about was coming true? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, it's strange because off and on uh, in my career as a writer, I have certainly written. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Stephen King was nearly killed in June of 1999 while taking his daily walk. He was walking along the gravel shoulder of Route 5, a two-lane highway near his home in Maine, when he was struck by a van driven by Brian Smith, who had several prior convictions for speeding and reckless driving. Over a year later, Smith was found dead in his home. King is still recovering from his injuries, which included nine breaks in his right leg, his right knee split almost directly down the middle, a fracture of his right hip, four broken ribs, and a scalp laceration that required nearly 30 stitches. His spine was chipped in eight places. Yet, fairly early in his recovery, he returned to writing. I spoke with Stephen King in 2000, after the publication of his book, On Writing, which is part memoir, part reflection on his craft. The last chapter is about the accident. We started with a reading. Most of the sight lines along the mile of Route 5, which I walk, are good. But there is one stretch, a short, steep hill, where a pedestrian walking north can see very little of what might be coming his way. I was three-quarters of the way up this hill when Brian Smith, the owner and operator of the Dodge van, came over the crest. He wasn't on the road. He was on the shoulder. My shoulder. I had perhaps three-quarters of a second to register this. It was just time enough to think, my God, I'm going to be hit by a school bus. I started to turn to my left. There is a break in my memory here. On the other side of it, I'm on the ground, looking at the back of the van, which is now pulled off the road and tilted to one side. This recollection is very clear and very sharp more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillights. The license plate and the back windows are dirty. I register these things with no thought that I have been in an accident or of anything else. It's a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swapped clean. There's another little break here.
the movies, of course.
I'm the boogeyman, that's what I am. I'm here to whatever I can. Be in early morning, late afternoon, or at midnight. All is never too soon to want to please you, to want to keep you, want to do it all, all for you. I want to. I'm your boogeyman, I'm the boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, that's what I am. I'm here to whatever I can, be it early morning. Late afternoon or at midnight, all is never too soon to want to teach you, to want to hug you. I want to give my all, all to you. I want to be the one to understand. Oh, wherever I am, oh, wherever I am, oh, yeah. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, turn me on. I'm your boogeyman, I'm your boogeyman, do what you want. I'm your boogeyman, that's what I am. I'm here to whatever I can, be in early morning. Late afternoon or at midnight, oh, it's never too soon. I want to be the one to be with you. There will be together, you and me. I want to see you, oh, girl, be with you. I want to love you up from something that's wrong. I am so 